0: This week on the New York Public Library podcast, New York Times urban affairs correspondent Sam Roberts comes to NYPL to discuss his latest work, A History of New York in 101 Objects.
1: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners
0: like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode.
1: I'm um, Jessica Strand. I'm the associate director of public programs and events at the New York Public Library, and I'm very happy to have Sam Roberts with me today. Um, he's the urban affairs correspondent for the New York Times. He's authored the author and editor of nine previous books, including *The Brother: The Untold Story of the Rosenberg Case*, and most recently *A History of 100 of New York and 101 Objects*. And we're going to talk about that further today. So please welcome Sam Roberts. Thank you. It's the first time I've spoken so quickly. i sorry about that. Anyway, I, um, I want to begin with a quote from Maria Popova, who is a writer. And if you haven't seen her blog, it's called Brain Pickings. And it's, it's an extraordinary blog about science and books. And she wrote about Sam's book, History of New York and 101 Objects. But to capture New York and just a few dozen objects seems near impossible, since of all that New York compresses in its small space, objects are practically innumerable and cacophonous. And yet, that is precisely what Sam Roberts accomplishes, partly a living museum, partly a catalogue of events, partly a luminous, sidewise gleam at the essence of what makes a city great. So I wanted to ask you, how are you able to do it? <laughs> Where did you begin to, because you, I mean, as we were talking back there in our green room, you were saying that you really thought about making it as accessible as possible, and we're gonna talk about objects later, but just how you came to your choices, how you really started thinking about New York in terms of objects.
0: Well, first, I apologize to all of you for having to stand. uh, But thank you all for coming. Uh, This was obviously inspired by the British Museum and BBC project, A History of the World in 100 Objects. Well, clearly, you couldn't do A History of New York in merely 100. It would take 101. Uh, So I figured, what are the criteria for looking at the objects of New York? And I wanted objects that were transformative uh, or emblematic of some sort of transformation. I wanted objects that were iconic but quirky, not the obvious ones. Uh, Objects that were not too much bigger than a bread box, at least figuratively. So not the Empire State Building, not the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Objects that were not human. So that ruled out Ed Koch. Uh, who a lot of people suggested. Objects that existed, there is only one object in the book that if it exists, I could not find. Um, and objects that were not all about food. Uh, more people suggested various forms of food that you could possibly imagine. Every form of pizza, empanada, knishes, <laughs> um egg creams, seltzer bottles, and I finally decided that you know, given the declining crime rate in New York, the motto of the city should probably be leave the gun, take the cannoli. Uh, <laughs> uh, but those were the major criteria, and the hard job was not finding 101, it was winnowing them down to 101.
1: Uh, I've just interviewed Myra Kellman last week about her book, which is about. Her favorite things, which are objects, um, and I want to just when you talk about i mean you you when you talk about objects representing New York i mean and you you're discussing them i mean how what is it about an object? I mean what is it about a thing? Is it the story behind the thing i mean i mean it's really it's it's more than the object itself it, it, it is you can look at an artichoke, I want you to talk about. The artichoke, and the artichoke, of course, could be something that is representative of, of the central coast of California, right? But here, it, it ties in the Italians. It ties in the mob in New York. It ties in... So to choose these things, they had to have stories that were emblematic of the city in some way. Well, I
0: mean, why look at history through objects? I mean, first of all, history for the most part, Ken Jackson at Columbia likes to say facetiously history is for losers, Uh, by which he means, you know, you look at places like Jamestown or Plymouth, Massachusetts, and these are places that really have not much more, I hope there's no one here from those places, Uh, not much more than their history. New York thinks about the present and thinks about its future. But history is really very important, and what I was looking to do was make history more accessible. One way to do that is through objects. Uh, The British Museum proved that. Objects in this materialistic world show that there is more to value than just paying something for a, a, a materialistic thing. That an object can have value not just because people are willing to pay for it. An object in this virtual world can have value because it is authentic. Uh, an object can have value because uh, it was invented. It is not part of a chronological time frame of events. Uh, there was a reason for this to come into being. Uh, there was a reason for it to happen. There was a need for it to be created. Uh, it also fits in with our desire to make lists as someone said, it, it allows us all to be Simon Cowell, in a way. We could all be, you know, create American idols by having lists of 100 or 101. So what I was trying to pick were quirky things that made people think about history in a different way. So why, in a list of 101 New York objects, is there something like a... Artichoke. Artichoke. Yeah. Uh, well, if you think you're living or lived in a nanny state under Rudy Giuliani, or Michael Bloomberg, think back to Mayor LaGuardia. Mayor LaGuardia banned the sale of artichokes. Why? Because Ciro Terranova was known as the artichoke king, and he controlled the market in artichokes for organized crime. And LaGuardia thought if he stopped the sale of artichokes, it would undermine organized crime. Well, that worked about as well as banning the sale of large sodas. Uh, (laughs) LaGuardia even banned Sierra Terranova from entering New York City. He had him arrested for vagrancy for crossing the Bronx line from Pelham. Uh, And I thought these were just fascinating insights into how New York City worked, how mayoral power was exercised, And I thought rather than finding, you know, a picture of Terra Terranova or something, you know, more abstract or more mundane, using an object like an artichoke would capture people's attention. Why is there an object like a mechanical cotton picker as an object representative of historic transformation in New York? go try and find a mechanical cotton picker in New York City. Well, you probably can't find even one, but the mechanical cotton picker in the late 40s freed blacks in the South from the cotton fields and created the migration, which changed the demographic face of cities like New York. And I thought that was clearly one of the objects that qualified for inclusion in this book.
1: Can you talk about the doorknob, the, p- the public school, the, the school doorknob that, sure. um, That uh, uh, I mean there must be, Are they, how many are still in existence?
0: Well, that's a good question. One of the objects in this book is a brass doorknob that some of you may remember was on the door, those great wooden oak doors of every schoolroom, public schoolroom in New York City. I remember being impressed by those as a kid going to PS219 in Brooklyn uh, and the very notion, now some politician obviously owned a brass doorknob company, but the fact that the city was willing to spend money investing in brass doorknobs and showing that it cared enough about public education to build schools with brass doorknobs was impressive. And I thought this was sort of representative, this was emblematic of the city's concern, care about public education. There are not many left. You can buy them on eBay, actually. Uh, Nowadays, you won't find them because, believe it or not, they don't comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. You need a lever doorknob. Uh, But I thought they were sort of representative in a way, emblematic in a way, of New York City's commitment to public education.
1: I wanted to find out how you researched the book. And... um You know, were you? I mean, what was your first object that you decided? Did you make a list, or did you like find five and start looking for them? I mean, how did you begin?
0: Well, Jessica, that's a very good question. I uh, when you know, I I am a reporter and a writer, and therefore spend a great deal of time researching, so I can avoid having to write. Uh, anything that will delay having to write is, is you know, something I engage in. So I recruited as many archivists, curators, librarians, uh, historians as I possibly could and said, what would you include if I'm making a list, an arbitrary number, 100, 101, whatever it happens to be, what would you include as transformative objects in the roughly 400-year history of New York City? And a lot of them had very good ideas. Some of them were pretty predictable, but a lot of them had ingenious ideas. Uh, when I wrote a story for the New York Times, which is how this began, I solicited ideas from the public, from readers. A lot of them had absolutely great ideas that I never would have thought of, uh, and just tried to accumulate as many ideas as I could. And I said the, as I said that. The problem was winnowing them down to 101. How
1: many did you have before you started editing? Thousands,
0: literally thousands. And what was so fascinating was there was very little duplication for one thing. And the ideas that came in, and that came in particularly from readers, were from not just all over the country, and not just expatriate New Yorkers, but all over the world from people who from some movie they had seen, from some book they had read, from some relative they had heard of, had some connection with New York. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. People who had never been here, uh, but knew something about New York, had heard something about New York, and some connection with it, some closeness with it, uh, and something in their minds meant New York to them. and they made a suggestion of people, I, the worst thing I did in the original Times list was I left out the subway token. I thought, okay, I'm gonna be a little more modern. I'm not gonna be as obvious. I put in the Metro Card. Well, God help me, people pummeled me for leaving out the Metro Card. A woman in Florida said, how could you do that? I used to put a token in my penny loafers instead of a penny. In case I ever got stuck without a token, you know, to go on the subway, there was always a token in my penny loafers. Well, believe me, I learned my lesson. There is a subway token, an original one with the Y cutout in, in the book. Uh, but how people connected with things like this that just said New York City to them. And fascinating connections. And, and this, again from people who not just came from New York, and not just tourists, but people from all over the world who felt some sort of real emotional connection to this city.
1: And was that, I mean, when you finally came up with your final list, did you, because obviously when you published something in the Times, you had the the subway token, were you terrified publishing 101 and thinking, oh my God, they're gonna react terribly. I didn't include this, I didn't include that. Or did you go out to the group of archives, whomever writers, various researchers, librarians and say, what do you think of this?
0: Well, I went out to a lot of people and told them their idea was 102, I have to admit. (laughs) Uh, And the fact is, you know, one of the great things about doing the research in this is I deal as a reporter with a lot of people who really don't want to talk to me or at least don't want to give me information. And it is so wonderful to be able to talk to librarians and archivists and historians and curators whose job is to share information. And they are not only welcoming in having people ask them questions, but they delight in giving out that information. It is just a wonderful experience and so you know, contrary to what I do every day. Uh, But I left a lot out. I mean, there is plenty of room for a second volume if Simon & Schuster ever wants to publish one. Uh, And I keep finding every day when I walk along the street or people write in, we actually set up an email address in the book for people to suggest more uh, because there's so many more things that you can suggest that are emblematic of New York, a city that just keeps growing, keeps changing.
1: So I'm gonna be slightly selfish here and ask you about two things which to me are representative of New York. The anthora, is that my the anthora coffee cup, which I'm sure you guys have all seen, the Greek diner one, which is in the book. I wanna hear the story behind that. And then the black and white cookie, mm-hmm. which is, as you say, more of a cake it than is, a cookie. It I, is indeed. So both of those, which are in this 101 objects, well, and to uh, me, represent New York. I'm as curious. As
0: someone said, you couldn't have an episode of Law and Order without the blue and white Anthora coffee <laughs> cup. Maybe now they've been pretty much replaced by Starbucks cups. But this was a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, a Holocaust survivor, who worked for a paper company in Connecticut. He was assigned to come up with a sort of generic coffee cup design for... Greek coffee shops, and he came up with this sort of phony ersatz Greek design patterned on the amphora, the Greek vase. He, for some reason, called it the anthora, the same reason I guess we called a spolding, a spaldine, <laughs> uh, and managed to manufacture billions of them Uh, and they are still around, they are now in ceramic form and probably every other form you could find them in and they just caught on incredibly and they are sold in New York gift shops, they are sold all over the place Uh, and everybody loves them and they have been knocked off in various forms. Uh, The company made millions of dollars doing so and they just became so identified with New York that as I say on every New York themed uh, television show, uh, they became an icon of New York. And the black and white cookie, a lot of people suggested some food, as I said, uh, that was emblematic of New York. And here, uh, I left out pizza because I didn't think it was a particularly New York item. I included the bagel because while it wasn't invented here, I think it is distinctly New York. It is very Lower East Side. Uh, And while it is now available everywhere, I think it is still identified as a New York item. I did include the black and white cookie. Now, that is author's prerogative. I like black and white (laughs) cookies. Now, Molly O'Neill of the New York Times said, and I dispute her on this, she said, there is no such thing as a delicious black and white cookie. <laughs> they are either edible or inedible. <laughs> I disagree, I like them. There was a whole Seinfeld episode on black and white cookies. <laughs> President Obama called them the unity cookie. In, <laughs> in Germany, they are called Americaners. Uh, I mean, they have achieved a worldwide cachet. It says a lot about you, whether you eat the chocolate or the vanilla first. Uh, I think they just say something about New York. Well, I don't know what it says, (laughs) which is what makes it so enigmatic. Uh, I have to eat the chocolate first and save the vanilla. I don't know what that says about me. (laughs) Um, But I just thought they are distinctly New York. Uh, You can find a delicious, edible black and white cookie. If you go to Glazer's Bake Shop on First Avenue, that is one place to find them. (laughs) Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I used to call them subway cookies because you bought them in the subway. Um, but I just thought they were distinctly New Absolutely.
1: York. Absolutely. There's one, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you're up to now. But there's there's one. Uh, you you mentioned the three foot uh, Madonna masonry sculpture that was that survived Hurricane Sandy, and it's something I've I've never seen it and. Um, you know, just, just describe how it... I mean, it is sort of miraculous that it still stands there, so... Well,
0: well, one of the tough things in the book was to figure out how you represent the past couple of decades, because every time you, you look at history, it tends to be skewed by recent events. Uh, when the Smithsonian this past summer asked Americans to vote on the most iconic object in its collection. It got 90,000 people to vote, and the number one object they voted for was one year old. It was the giant panda that was born last year in the National Zoo. Now, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, are people really gonna think that was the most iconic object? So you really have to stop and say, when you're looking at the past 10, 20, 30 years, you have to step back a little bit and be very careful what you include. So I did include 9-11. There is a jar of dust that was collected that day in lower Manhattan, very enigmatic, very mysterious. We don't know what's in that jar of dust. We don't want to know what's in it, but it was representative of that day, an important date no matter what in New York history. And I included the Madonna that survived the fire in Breezy Point, Queens, and Hurricane Sandy, because that hurricane, a major, major storm in New York history, no matter what, and a sign of New York resilience. This city has gone through a lot. It has gone through major catastrophes. That will certainly number one of them, and it has always come back. And I thought that was a good way to end the book.
1: I could go on and on. This is a really fascinating, fun book and I recommend you all to buy it. But I wanted to ask you what you're working on now, having done this. Are you working on another book project, or? Uh,
0: I am overdue, of course, on another book. Frame Rob wrote a book a couple of years ago that I really fell in love with called Parisians. I don't know how many of you may have read it, but it was a history of Paris told through a, uh, a bunch of relatively obscure individuals. Uh, and I'm trying to write a book like that about New York. Uh, one of those individuals is actually mentioned in this book, A History of New York and 101 Objects. One of the people I just stumbled across, and that's why this book was so much fun to write. There is a, one of the objects is a ticket from the Third Avenue trolley. And the object is emblematic of a woman, a black woman named Elizabeth Jennings, And one morning, she was getting on the trolley in lower Manhattan to go to church on a Sunday morning, and she got thrown off the trolley because she's black. And she sued. She hired a young lawyer named Chester Arthur, who would go on to become president of the United States. She took the case to court, and she won. The court said, you're black, but you weren't disruptive. You weren't rowdy. You have every right to ride the bus just like anyone else. And this was 100 years before Rosa Parks. And nobody knows the story. And to me, that was just a fascinating insight into New York history and how history evolves. So I'm trying to tell the story of New York, the story of history, the story of how history can be so much fun and so interesting and so intriguing through people like that.
1: Do you? What have you read lately? Do you read a lot of history, or do you read? You try to escape history into
0: science fiction. (laughs) I don't know novels or. I I love history, and I don't think we can or should escape it. Uh, I don't read enough novels. Um, I'm not a. I review books in the Times in the Metropolitan section, mostly New York books. Uh, And I love history because I think we can learn so much from it. One of my favorite books that I'm actually, I hate to admit, rereading because there's so little time is uh, Margaret Macmillan's Paris 1919, which is a story of horribly good intentions gone awry at the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919. How they totally screwed up the world, and how William Bullitt, who was one of the representatives of the United States, just walked away from the peace conference and the reporters asked him, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to lie on the beach in the Riviera and watch the world go to hell. And he did, and it did.
1: Well, on that note, because you're not walking away, we're gonna actually give this microphone out, and you're gonna answer a few questions from the audience, if you don't mind. I'd be delighted. So, um, I'm gonna give my mic, and I'll just point at you, if you would like to ask Sam a question,
0: here. Uh, how, how do you write? Could you talk about your writing process, when and how you do it? Uh, I write on a uh, computer with a keyboard, Um, And I write after doing prodigious research, one, to delay the act of writing, as I readily admit, and two, because the more I research, the more pool of information I have to write from. So that may be a rationalization, uh, but the more quotes I have, the more facts I have, the more anecdotes I have, the more I am able to synthesize that to distill that into some sort of narrative to write something that I hope is interesting and coherent. But the physical process is either writing in longhand on a legal pad, can't type anymore on a typewriter, that I just find too confining. Uh, But a legal pad drawing arrows all over the place, but now much more so just on a computer where you can cut and paste on the computer it is just so much easier. Oh, there must be more yeah, come on, there must be something you think I left out, or yes. what about an object? Oh, and and one of the things I address in the book and I've tried to address since then is personal objects, people's personal rosebuds, like in Citizen Kane. What what is a object in your own life? That was transformative. What is your own rosebud sled, if you will? Okay, I've got actually two questions. One is, is, there a particular time of day that you write once you start writing or does it catch time as you can? And the other is, if you had to name just one iconic thing for New York instead of 101, what would go to the top of your list? Okay, two good questions. When do I write? Whenever I can. Uh, I usually write early in the morning. Uh, That's when my head is clearest. Write if I can, and I do have a day job. Uh, Write if I can, like from 6 to 10 or something like that. Certainly write on weekends uh, a great deal. Uh, Which is the object that I think is most emblematic of New York? Hard to tell, but I'd say if I had to pick absolutely one, I'd say it's probably something that I spent many hours learning to pronounce when I was in Amsterdam called the Brief, which is, if anything is, is the city's birth certificate, which was a letter from Peter Skahagen to the West India Company in 1625 which listed all the items on this ship returning to the Netherlands. We're bringing back some beaver skins and some hides and some animals. And we, there were some births in New Amsterdam that took place uh, over the summer. And by the way, we bought Manhattan Island from the Indians. Uh, and if anything qualifies as the birth certificate of New York City, I think it is that. The Indians didn't think they had sold Manhattan Island, but the Dutch thought they had bought it. One more question?
1: Ah, right there. Keep hand? No, 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 You tantalized us because you said that, uh, rightly, that you do read history, and you started to say, I don't read much fiction or many novels, and I wondered, some of us think that the way to history is very often through great historical novels. If you had a few, maybe about New York even, that you might want to suggest. Well,
0: there are great historical novels about New York. Uh, Time and again, Kevin Baker's novels, Pete Hamill's novels. Uh, There are some great ones, uh, written long ago, Washington Irving uh some of my favorite novels which are more sort of upstate new york no relation but i read them as a kid and loved them were kenneth roberts's novels which have long fallen out of favor uh mostly sort of revolutionary war and that period novels but i think those are really the ones that got me hooked on history uh and i'm not sure why kids don't read them anymore i love them
1: Any more questions? Oh, now people are asking. Okay, we're gonna take one more because you were very, very shy at first. Okay, I'm gonna give it to this gentleman.
0: Hi, over the weekend I was at the Tesla Science Center out on Long Island and I know Nikolai Tesla, the great inventor, died in New York. Do you have any observations about any of his legacy that he left objects that are here, that remain? Well, we have Tesla Corner right uh, around the corner in Bryant Park because he did some of his inventing, I think, right on 6th Avenue and 40th Street, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He was vastly underrated as an inventor in electricity and lots of things like that. I don't think there's anything in the book on him, uh, but that was probably number 102.
1: Thank you all. Um, Thank you so much, Sam Roberts, for coming in. Thank you for coming. And um, Sam will be signing behind me his wonderful book. I encourage you to buy it because there's a lot in it that we couldn't talk about today. And next week we have Martin Amos at Books at Noon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This
0: podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at NYPL.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode.